Hello, I'm architect Pete Calhoun, and you're listening to Better Ideas. Now, this is our first ever weekly podcast, and each week we'll be bringing you the latest tips for creating a better home inside and out. I'll be chatting with experts, enthusiasts, and of course, all the Better Homes and Gardens TV gang. They'll be joining me right here on Better Ideas. This week, we'll be talking about something we'll all have to consider at some point in our lives, and that's intergenerational living. Now, we're going to start off with a bit of a stretch. I'll be talking bees with Joanna Griggs. Let's talk bees. Let's talk something I love. Yeah, Jo, she's not only the queen bee, but very passionate about the subject. Then the environmental architect, Tone Wheeler, from En Verona Studio, kicks off the intergenerational living conversation. Put the food under the door, thanks, Mum. That's right. We've also got Gary Finn, the accessibility architect, who believes intergenerational living is simply future-proofing your house. You spill a drink or drop your scotch, whatever. Got to be what able to. What are you talking to... about, Gary? <laughs> <laughs> you got to be able to. Uh, yeah, you got to be able to. You know, mop it up without falling all over the place. Come on, Tars. Tara, it's Peter. How are you? Hi. Hello, Pete. How are you? I'm going well. Yes, I've got Tara on the line, and she'll be giving us her personal tips on intergenerational living. Now, as it's our first ever Better Ideas podcast, what I'd like you to do is go to the ACAST website and download the ACAST app and use that as your window for all your podcast listing. Now, what that means is you can watch along as well as listen. You can also see all of Joanna Griggs's B photos. You've got to check it out. I'm with Joanna Griggs. Jo, I'm sure there's a connection, intergenerational living, but we're talking about beehives. Now, you're an avid beehiver, home beehiver, to be or not to be. That is the question. (laughs) Why did you get into bees? Oh, look, to be perfectly honest, as you also know, I'm obsessed with vegetable growing and my garden. So originally, the the sole purpose of getting the bees was for pollination and and how, you know, once you actually understand bees, you realise how important they are and the role that they play right across the way the whole world works. So it's, you started with a small idea and it very quickly becomes quite a grand idea when you think about bees in the scheme of the world. Anyone who actually goes and does a beekeeping course or is lucky enough to, to be able to pick the brains of somebody that, that loves bees and starts to learn about how they work, you just become obsessed. So I am hand on my heart <laughs> obsessed with bees. I have one hive. I have another hive on standby so that if there is ever a swarm, I'm ready to catch it. Right. <laughs> and I will end up having many hives because your second you do your course, they say, look, you, you just won't be able to stop at one. They are the most fascinating creatures. You know, it's a bit like Game of Thrones. You basically have your one queen. You have all the drones who are the men in the hive. Um, All bees start out as females and then some become the males. The male's sole job is to to fly away. They meet at a certain point and they basically the the queen bee flies to this point, gets impregnated with enough semen to last her her lifetime. She then comes back to her hive and lays between two and 4,000 eggs a day for three to four years. And that is her sole purpose. And she just, she's there just to lay eggs and you've got your little larva. If she gets to a point where she starts to weaken within the hive, the bees themselves will actually you know, get a sense of that. They will lay a whole lot of baby larva, feed them up with royal jelly, and then they'll be like eight or, or nine uh, you know, up-and-coming queen bees. They'll then fight to the death, and the one that survives 
They then take out the old queen and let the the most the, the strongest queen go through. It's brutal. Now this is not the intergenerational living I thought we were get, discussion no, we're getting into. But, but it's but amazing because I mean wow. they, the, the way they structure you start off with a, you know, your brood box and so you're, you're structuring the, you know larvae in the middle. You then have you know, your capping and your honey and you have all these different parts that that surround each frame and your thing. But the other amazing thing that the drones do is if they feel the area that your hive is in isn't suitable anymore for that colony, they basically will exercise the queen. So the way that you tell the queen is she has a longer body than the other bees and a shorter head and smaller wings mm-hmm. and and she's much bigger because the sole purpose is just to lay the eggs right they will basically exercise her until she loses about two-thirds of her body weight and is then able to fly they will head off they will find a new suitable location they will fly the queen bee to the new suitable location work out if it's right for them and that's why when they are swarming, you'll see, you know, hives start in bicycle seats or yeah. in random trees. And then in the They're second that mission. they are back into a safe hive, they fatten her back up and get her back laying eggs. God. Like, it is amazing. And other things, like these are the random things that you learn. If you moved your beehive more than one metre away from where you started out in the morning, the bees wouldn't be able to find their way back to it. Really? They, they They're drunk on honey. Yeah, no. no, they get up every morning and they fly. They send out their, you know, their little trackers in the morning and they basically you know, do a little GPS tracking of all the mountains around them and all the trees around them and that will tell them to the exact point where your hive is, which is why you can see lots of hives next to each other because they will only ever go back into their hive. They won't get confused and go into another. So Extraordinary. You have to really think about them if you're moving them long distances or do it very, very slowly in short distances. I mean, if you've got a natural affiliation of introducing bees into a residential area, you might just love the idea of beekeeping. You are producing honey. It's potentially a revenue raiser. We've mentioned the queen, we've mentioned the drones, but then we have the workers who actually make the honey. How do we get started? Where do we go to, to get a beehive? Well, the first thing that I'd recommend if you if you are interested, there are so many beekeeping clubs. I mean, people would actually be amazed, even in their local areas, how many hives there probably are. And I'm talking about not just in country areas, I'm talking about in urban areas and city areas. So there are specialist beekeeping clubs that you can go. You can go to their open days, you can pick the brains of people, you can talk... Go and do a course. I did it with my best mate. We loved it so much and have talked about it so much now. Other members of, of both our families have gone and done the course. You have to also learn to look out for what diseases you need to be a little bit aware mm. of. And also you have to register yourself if you are going to, to have a hive with the Department of Primary Industry. So mm-hmm. it's the same as anything. If, if you're actually looking after animals, and these are really important animals in, in the world's ecosystem, you actually have to educate yourself on them. You know, work out what sort of hive you want. Work out how invested you want to get. But actually... Buy the whole hog, do a course, and I guarantee you, you will become absolutely obsessed. You'll find other people who just love talking about bees, and I think that's the thing I didn't expect <laughs> was how many people, when you mention bees, they know someone who knew bee, had bees yeah. or, or they have an interest in bees, and all these random discussions will come up. But the more you learn about them, the more there is to learn. You don't need a licence or anything, do you? No, you just license? have to register with the Department of Primary Industries yeah. and let them know how many hives you have. And as far as actually getting your bees, through a bee-providing company, and they're all over the place, and again, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you're doing it over the internet. I actually go to someone who is registered with rights to be selling bees. They arrive in... It's the most bizarre thing. It's like a little timber frame box with two mesh sides. Yep. And in the very top, you've got like a little plastic container which holds your queen and about three or four other bees with her. And when you actually get to your hive, you set up your hive. I went with a flow hive, which are uh, Australian father, son, Cedar and um, Stuart Anderson. Mm-hmm. Now, real purists, they probably hate flow hives. 
But flow hives are, I think, absolutely brilliant. I mean, at the course that I did that was 100% full and they've sold out the next few courses, you know, it's probably at least 60, 40 in the room doing flow hives compared to more traditional hives. So it's got a lot of people back into beekeeping and it's an an all-Australian design. It's been patented around the world for these guys and they're doing amazing things with it and it makes beekeeping very, very simple. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend, Pete, Google your local beekeeping club because they're, they're, you'd be surprised how many of them are, um, both amateur and professional. The other great thing with that is if you do have a swarm that you notice, you know, in when, when it's swarming season and you look outside and all of a sudden there's a swarm that has appeared out of nowhere, if that scares the bejesus out of you, call your local beekeeping club. They'll generally have a whole lot of beekeepers who are ready to come out with a little brood box ready to go. They'll put in a special swarm sp- spray, which uh, has about, you know, 10 strands strains of, of the scent that the queen bee would actually put out and they'll just sit it there and you know they might, they might have to shake a branch or you know if they have enough time they just let them get down there themselves but shake a branch and they will they will like capture them. the swarm for you and then that will actually be rehomed with somebody who is desperate <laughs> to have their hive really yeah isn't that amazing? So don't, don't be scared of a swarm. You could no. harvest them oh, yourself. Honestly, and I mean, at the moment, like there's been some really devastating losses of bee colonies right across South Australia because of the extreme you know, temperatures that they've had over their summer. So you know, there is a need for us to be looking after bees. And I know that there were a couple of terrible incidents in the Northern Territory where people were going around and poisoning hives. Without bees, we don't have anything. Mm. We, don't, we don't have trees, plants, pollination, fruit, veggies, the whole bit. So as opposed to looking at a bee or instilling complete fear in your child and a bee unless they have you know an allergy that you're aware of teach them that these are the things that we need to be you know protecting and treasuring more above anything else yeah in, in terms of the web of life yeah. bees are right up there in yep. terms of sustaining life on absolutely. this planet cross pollinating our food sources absolutely and I can tell you they've made my vegetable garden absolutely bloom. <laughs> Now, have you been stung how many times? And no. Really? I, look, I haven't so far. They reckon that you will. I, look, one of the great things about social media, these, uh, you know, as soon as we put up, we're doing bee courses and we've got the full bee suits mm-hmm. and all the rest of it and the gloves and, and, you know, and I, as I say, I'll probably forever wear those because I, I don't know if I'd ever be really confident. The first time that you're standing in a hive that you have stirred up and you have around you, you it is quite an alarming mm. sound and sensation because you, you're taught to swap bees when, when you're young growing mm. up. Around bees, the two things that you don't want to do are, um, or three things, you don't want to have any chemicals that will kill them. You don't want to be making any fast movements because that will set off them to send an alarm to the other bees. And you also don't want to be around really, really loud noises. If you're going to be whippersnippering underneath where you've got the hive, you're asking for the bees to be upset with you. Mm. So if you just keep it nice and quiet and calm, the bees are just going to be busy doing their things. And as far as setting them up, when you get them, you put your, your queen little container, you take the lid off, you put it into your frames, which is in your, your brood box. You undo the lid and inside it's sealed with a tiny bit of like sugar candy. And the bees will eat through the sugar candy and then that's how they're released. Now, once the queen's in, they will not leave. They're in there. They will not leave you got her. Them. You've got them. Here's a fun fact. Did you know bees, they attack in response to dark objects and that's why the bees are, are, white. Are, are, are white. It's not a fashion statement. Furry objects and carbon dioxide, that's what stirs up yeah. bees. I also note that about 3% of the population can have a quite an adverse allergic yeah. reaction if they Look, are stung. I keep EpiPens for both adults and children close by the hive, you know, in the house so that if there was a reaction that you're ready for it. But before when you were asking about stinging, when I first put up the first photo of the beekeeping course, somebody said to me, oh, I see you've got your full protective hood on. 
wear a peak cap underneath it. And all that does is it gives you a buffer so that you never actually will have the mesh on your face and therefore that's most likely the place that you'd be getting stung. That was just from somebody who has a passion for bees who's learnt through their own experiences. So, so far, Pete, no stings. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah. You know what else? They don't, they don't fly at night. They only crawl at night. Yeah. They need to have, be close like to water. Sounds like most of my mates, yeah. Sounds <laughs> like most of your mates. <laughs> they need to be near water, yeah. also yeah. like a lot of your mates. Um, so you have to make sure that you've got you know, water within a, a reasonable distance for them to access to. You've got your farm and you've got the bee, bees up there, I'd imagine, but you can have them in, in residential areas. But it's a good idea to let your neighbours know, right, and local council. Yeah, look, a great way to sweeten them up is, is supply them with honey. Really... It's very hard for anyone to object if you want, and most people probably wouldn't even know if their neighbours had bees in the back. All of a sudden, once you get bees, you start noticing what's flowering, what season it's flowering in, what can you plant that's going to be flowering for in the winter months where there might not be as much. You know, what Australian natives can you put in that, that will actually do? And you just everywhere you go, if you see something flowering, you just stop and you <laughs> find out information on it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. How, how much money do we need to get started with a basic little setup with a, with a beekeeping hive? Ah, uh, look, it depends what sort of hive that you're going for. You can start with really basic kits, so anywhere from probably about 150 to 300, maybe up to close to about 800 if you're going for something like a flow hive that comes with everything done. You just basically put it together. If you want all the safety equipment, you're probably looking about another 150 to $200. Your actual bees, probably about $400, $350-$400. And you know, I'm just trying to remember facts and figures. I really should have researched that again before <laughs> I came in. But it's roughly that. That's, that's ballpark figures. Mm. And in a a really great season of flowering and you know lots of pollination you could be getting 20 kilos every couple of weeks a couple of weeks yep really like, yep, every every you know three to six weeks you are the busiest person i know but yep. how much time do you actually need to spend once you actually set up your brood hive which is the main thing you've got to make sure you've got a happy beehive you actually the time that you waste is the time that you actually go and watch I will take my morning coffee out and just sit and watch the hive watch come to bugs. life. And they are amazing. They keep the hive at a quite a warm temperature, but a very set temperature. But if it's a really hot day, again, all those you know little worker bees and the drones will, will sit out at your front entryway and just blow their little um, you know little wings and cool the hive down to the right temperature. Like they're just they're just the most amazing little colonies. They're fascinating. Nature's real life Game of Thrones. Yeah. I'm with Joe Griggs, and we've we've somehow talked about bees in a podcast about intergenerational living. I'm not sure how we've done it, Joe. Well, but... <laughs> I mean, it just keeps going in a beehive, doesn't it? I mean, you, you have your larvae, which turn into your worker bees, your drones, and, and potentially you know your, your queens if they fed the royal jelly. So, yeah. I mean, it probably is the greatest example of efficient intergenerational living that also provides amazing produce in the form of honey and amazing entertainment in the form of if, if you if you love nature and you love watching nature in action, you, you can see the whole gamut and spectrum of it by just watching your bees at their hive. Well, to be or not to be, no longer <laughs> a question. Thanks, Joe. You are welcome. Joanna, I can tell you, just loves her bees. But I tell you, she's not getting any free bees when she talks about products, she just talks about stuff she's absolutely passionate about and believes in, what she's found and what she sees regarding bees. Up next, architect, author and educator with an abiding interest in environmentally sustainable design. The one and only Tone Wheeler. Tone, intergenerational living really should be considered moving forward in this 21st century. It's really interesting in Australia that we're actually starting to embrace it. 
partly because we've got lots of people from Asia who always had the grandparents, parents and children living together, and partly because a lot of people who came from Southern Europe would also have multi-generations in a house. And they'd live, you know, in both cultures, live long enough to even have great-grandparents. Well, most of the world do it. Well, we didn't. We we're actually very individualistic. We followed more of the American model that you moved away from home as soon as you were able to. I went just recently to a Japanese version of Homeworld. It's very common in Japan for a freestanding home to have the grandparents on the ground floor where it's easily accessible. Mm -hmm. And then above that might be the family living area with the parents. And above that again, because it's quite common to have three or four story houses in Tokyo or Mm. Osaka, that you actually have the children living there. Now, we're doing a version of that. There might be a completely separate flat in inverted commas. It's a a largish room with its own bathroom and maybe it's got a a small kitchenette and a kettle and so on. It could be an income-producing asset as well as being for the grandparents at some time. Then there's a living area. And then when you go upstairs, turn left for the kids, turn right for the parents. Yeah, right. The traditional way that everybody slept together and everybody kept each other awake and whatever else. We need to get rid of that. We need to solve that problem. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you still be able to see when the kids come home, make sure they're safe. The thing about it is to actually have the kids having their own realm, as it's sometimes called, their own place. Mm. And therefore, you don't make it open plan. It's very much the opposite. It's a closed plan. Isn't it the opposite to what's been traditionally the leading forms of architecture and planning this idea of open planning? We're sort of reverting back to more individual, unique spaces within the home. Absolutely. You, you put your finger on it because the tradition was always you make a home for early families in those kind of homework places. Most of the customers for that have got young kids mm-hmm. and they, they they want the children to be able to be seen and so on. Ten years later, they're growing into teenagers and yes. they just want to be in their room and have the, you know, put the food under the door, thanks, That's Mum. right. That's <laughs> right. So the house is outdated. We haven't a future-proofed. Almost this... immediately. Mm, mm. And then when the house is sold again, you go through this same cycle. Tone, let's just do a little bit of role-playing, right? I'm, I'm an average family in an average suburb in Australia and all of a sudden my partner's mother wants to move in with us. Ah, Pete, I'm not going down the mother-in-law jokes. <laughs> no, no, no. But, 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 but I know exactly where you're going yeah, with yeah. that. Yeah, not, every, not everyone plays happy families, you know, but there's a kind of economic incentive. You know, the money is... Now I'm listening. It. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> but how do you do it in such a way that terribly uh, mm. interfering mother-in-law is mm. not necessarily in the kitchen the whole time? Mm. Yeah. It's a design solution. Like most of these problems, you can describe what the problem is, then you can actually describe a way of getting around it. We've become very one-dimensional about how our families are, right? The moment that somebody disagrees with somebody else, yeah, that's it. Out. Yep. You're gone. Never happens with me, but I know other, well, other families <laughs> that it does. Yes. What I'm saying is that you can design these houses so that you've actually got completely separate areas so that when the kids are being really annoying, you know, you're not actually hearing them and it's not a door slamming. It's like, please... Don't go to your room, go to your flat. Yeah. You know, go to, yeah. go to your house, mm. which, which house in inverted commas is a, a space where they've got perhaps their own living area. They can look after themselves, make a bit of food. They've maybe got a small fridge they can look after themselves. And maybe they disappear in there for 24 hours, cool down, whatever, and you know, everything comes back to normal after that. So it's future-proofing as well as intergenerational design, which, look, look architecture can influence behavior it can't 
dictate behaviour. It always comes back to communication. And- it can prevent behaviour. The problem is that we an open plan house prevents people from having true privacy. One of the great thinkers of architecture in the 20th century, Serge Shemayev, said, you can't have community without privacy. You can't actually enjoy being together unless you can also enjoy being alone. If it's one continuum that you're always in the same relationship with people around you, there's, there's no chance to get away, think by yourself, but also enjoy the community together, you know, being the communal life. Well, you're listening to Better Ideas with me, Pete Calhoun, and we're talking intergenerational living. We started off with Joanna Griggs, who featured one of nature's greatest communities, bees, and from there we led into Tone Wheeler, who taught us about the importance of understanding intergenerational living in architecture. Let's take it step by step, or perhaps ramp by ramp, and drill down a bit further with Gary Finn, who specialises in access management and in this type of stuff, in intergenerational living. Welcome, Gary. Tell us the importance of, of intergenerational living and adapting the home. It's becoming more and more of an important feature in Yeah, homes. well, in New South Wales, there's got something like about 35% of the population who are 65 and over, and, you know, 20% of the population have one disability or another. And that means that, uh, you know, roughly 40 to 50% of the population have access challenges. And we've been designing buildings for the wrong people. We've been designing, you know, imagining ourselves being 25 and being running up and down stairs and so on we should be thinking of ourselves as 65 and struggling with a dicky hip and the, <laughs> and the and the you know the fetlock we've broken you know from sudden bursts of speed and of course the the expense of aged care if mum and dad or nan and pop have to move into aged care facilities that becomes very expensive so changing an existing home let's get focused on some of the things we can do to make those homes more accessible The first thing we want to do is make sure that we can check the mailbox or at least get to the mailbox or get to the street to catch an Uber or a cab or or something like public transport. Next, we want to sort of make sure that we can get undercover kind of protection at our front door so we can fum around, get our keys out. That's useful too for mothers with twins, you know. They've got a twin pram. You've seen everyone's got those, even (laughs) if it's full of of groceries most of the time. (laughs) Oh, I feel sorry for some of those mums. Yeah, bags under one arm and kids under the other pushing prams. Yeah, but it's a good tip for everyone. Then, of course... Uh, we need wider doors. The front door is narrow, very narrow. So if we can make it wider, say uh, 1020 wide, something like that, people can move in and out quite readily with that twin-sized pram. And this, of course, helps people who have disabilities so that they just fall into the category by by accident, really. So if we deal with everybody by accident, that's better because nobody notices that a home is accessible. Inside the home, of course, Probably the two most dangerous rooms are the the kitchen and the bathroom. And for elderly people, for intergenerational living, that does need a bit of attention. Definitely. The slippery floor problem is the first thing we would look at. Uh, The tile's slippery or the floor finish in the kitchen. You know, if you spill a drink or drop your scotch or whatever. Got to be what able to... What are you talking to... about, Gary? <laughs> <laughs> you've got to be able to, uh, yeah, you've got to be able to, you know, mop it up without falling over the place. In the bathroom, you'd want to have a shower space that's big enough to have an assistant help you if necessary. So building in a nice twin shower, you know, with shower heads at each end, you know, mum and dad shower together, save a bit of water, saves energy, but it also provides a wonderful way to provide disability access in the bathroom and put your toilet pan in the corners and make them a bit more generous than they automatically become accessible. When we're talking about luxury in, in en-suites, it's, it's not just the sense of space and the wonderful tiles and the career sort of feature if you can afford it, but, but having that space really does have a practical use when it comes to mum and dad and elderly people using these facilities. 
Most definitely. Mm -hmm. Got to have step-free kind of showers, a shower screen that maybe you can relocate if you have to, you know, down the track. All these tiny little things, uh, you know, come into play. So overall, it's just planning the bathroom correctly to begin with or modifying a bathroom. So we might, in a large house, you might convert a bedroom into a nice big bathroom so you can take advantage of the requirements for disability access into your older age. So important to look after the bathroom, probably the most important, but next it would be the kitchen too. Definitely. The kitchen's um, a space where we love galley kitchens. I don't know why we love galley kitchens, but they look good, don't they? <laughs> There's only one cook, they work well, but as soon as you have two or three or four cooks and mum comes around, she likes to get in there and tell us what to do. <laughs> But as soon as there's more than one person, you can't move around very much. If I'm stacking the dishwasher on one side of the kitchen and mum's opening the oven on the other side, you know, pulling a roast out or something, then we're all in each other's way. It's crazy stuff. Mm. Got to provide enough room in there for more than one person. In an intergenerational home, it's, it's essential. You'd want at least 1550 between the bench tops. Make sure that uh, you've got enough space to do those That's things. one and a half metres between your, your bench and your island bench. It's not much more. I mean, we normally do 1,200. So we need like 350 mil more. and then It makes we, an enormous difference. If we have that, it makes all that difference. And a person in a wheelchair can do a 360-degree ah, turn in that space. Great so. tip. Of course, you know, as you get older, your dexterity sort of becomes... Well, you're losing, you know, over time. So I'm told I'm not the not not the yet, Gary. But but what are some of the things we need to think about in terms of handles and those sorts of things? Yeah, it's it's very hard if you've got arthritis to grasp a knob and turn it because you can't hold it, you can't squeeze it tight enough, and so on. So you want to just have a lever action thing. And when you choose a lever, you want to be careful not to have one that can jam your finger into the edge between the lever and the door. I see that see that quite often. Sometimes you see D-handles, but they're often too close to the jam of the door and you yep. can't get your hand in there. Or when you do, you squash your fingers. And there's all these little clearances and so on that need to be considered so that we can make sure that they don't cause an injury so that uh, it is easier. And, of course, you can have technical solutions for all of this, automated and yep. so on. Sensors and stuff, so things open and close when people approach them. It's easier for elderly people to pull a lever as opposed to turn a knob. So that's a, that's a great tip if you're designing there's cupboards and doorways for, for intergenerational living. What about laundries and stuff? Are there any tips for those sorts of rooms? Yeah, look, a laundry's a space we jam into a little cupboard somewhere typically, and that's never that good because a bit of space is really all that's needed. If you can provide 1550 in front of those appliances, then a person in a wheelchair can spin around. Of course, slipping is a problem there too, so the floor finish is important. This is so important, this discussion, and, and some of the tips here are, are wonderful. You want this to be almost as important and there's light coming into the home and designing a home where it's not overt but it's integrated actually into the design. Don't want to approach this on an ad hoc basis. Occupational therapists are, are great people, you know, they have a real good heart. Come along and they'll say, yeah, what you need is a couple of grab rails in your bathroom and they'll, they'll throw them in there, you know, they'll, oh, won't throw them in. they'll get them in there and then next year when you need something else, they'll add that. So a little ramp, you know, check plate ramp comes in your, in your hallway, you know, grab rails down the sides, you know, stuff like this. All these little piecemeal additions, they do one thing, they remind a person who has a disability that they have a disability and they're imposing these changes on the rest of the family and I think it's really critical to get 
uh, architects designing integrated accessible uh, solutions uh, when modifying existing housing. Gary, I think we've, we've covered the steps or the ramps with intergenerational living. Well, you're listening to Better Ideas with me, Pete Calhoun. We've listened to the blokes, Tone Wheeler and Gary Finn, who wised us up on some of the importance of getting accessibility into the home for intergenerational living. Let's finish off with a bit of cream. Let's get Tara Dennis on the line from Better Homes and Gardens, and she's got some tips on how to, well, make it beautiful. Come on, Tara. Tara, it's Peter. How are you? Hi, hello, Pete. How are you? I'm going well. I'm just um, we're just in the middle of uh, the podcast of intergenerational living. Yes. You cool with that? Yeah, I'm good. I'm sitting on the edge of a park in the middle of Balmain, so if it sounds noisy, it's the work. I'm on a work site. <laughs> They're drilling inside. Oh, really? Outside. What are you working on? <laughs> my next shop, my second shop. It's all going on. Great. It's all go. Okay. Yeah. It's what well, we do? I'm looking for some inspiration. Tars on intergenerational living and, and making it seem beautiful and seamless in the home. Any thoughts? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my top tips for keeping intergenerational living sane and everybody on the same planet is to obviously stay organised and just be really patient. We're currently doing it. My daughter's just moved back home with her boyfriend. Is that and Avalon? so far so good. Yeah, Avalon's How old back. is Avalon now? Um, She's 27 now. She's just no. moved back from the UK. She's living there with her boyfriend. And you know what? So far, so good. Everyone's getting on. But the reason I think that it's working so well is because we kind of set some ground rules. So they're really neat and tidy. They kind of do their thing, but they stay within their bounds. So I think that's really good for everyone to sort of just focus on that. You know, you've got to kind of carve out your little territories in the house. Um, I think if you've got in-laws or, you know, older parents moving back with you, I think you need to... Possibly even think about the layout of the house. You might even want to give up your bedroom and your ensuite, perhaps for mum and dad, because they might need the loo in the middle of the night. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. So I think little changes like that can really add to just easier everyday living. So I think people need to edit their clutter, need to keep your clutter to a minimum. Don't drag all your stuff out and leave it all over the house. You know, kind of take it back to your bedroom. You know, if your shoes are near the door, when you come in, take them back to your room, that kind of stuff. So it's just the little things that kind of niggle people day by day. And if you just avoid that mm. and kind of work with each other, I just think life's a little bit smooth, you know. I, so, I, I reckon you hit the nail on the head, though. It's uh, it's setting the ground rules, I suppose. I mean, mm, if, if it's mm. your home and you've got kids moving back in, what do you, what if it's mum and dad or or, or mm. a parent moving back in? I mean that the communication. I mean who's in charge? I mean it might get a bit complicated. It can be hard because you know sometimes you know Nan might kind of say to you, you know your, your, your kids that's not acceptable, but you might think it's acceptable. So Nan kind of has to know that you're the boss in your own house. You know what I mean? So maybe Nan needs to have a little bit of a chat to say it's not okay. You know you just kind of need to mm. you know just chill a little bit and let us handle the parenting. Yeah, it's just it's ground rules. It's just respect for each other's territories and stuff, even to the degree of noise level. You know, like <laughs> my in-laws, they have the TV up so loud. I go over there, I can't hear myself sit, but they can't hear it because they're obviously their hearing's on the on the blip. So <laughs> maybe, maybe it's a case of going out and buying each other a set of headphones if that keeps the peace. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just little things like that that you don't you don't consider until it's actually happening around you. Small things make a huge difference. Think about your layout, think about the clutter, think about the noise and respect. I mean, you're perfect for this topic because you've been through it, you're going through it. Has there been any awkward moments, Tara, just between you and me? Bring it in close. No, it's actually been 
really good. It's been really great. They're really cool because they've got they've got the focus of you know what we've moved back home, so we're kind of encroaching on their lifestyle. They do their washing, they help. You know, some days I come home and he's folded the washing, which is awesome, or he's made dinner. In fact, he's picking up my son from school today. So it's a really nice hey, let's just help out. We've all got to get the job done. Let's just make this a big happy family rather than mum thinking she's got to clean up the house after everybody. You know, you just don't want to add another list of chores to her already big list, you know. So I just think we all live there. We've all got little jobs to do, and if we all do our bit, then happy days. Well, you, you know? you, and that's so far so good. <laughs> well, so, so fingers crossed. A really, really nice way to, to finish on Tara. I mean, we've looked at a lot of the negatives that we have to address in terms of intergenerational living, but you're finishing on a real positive. It can be really positive and just basically help life to run smoothly and that's what it's all about for me and it's yeah, it's, it's good. I'm actually really happy. They're going to be moving out soon. They're going to get their own place. <laughs> I tell you what, I'm going to miss having dinner made. I'm going to miss having my wash. <laughs> I'll be going, come back and live back at home with me. <laughs> oh, isn't it funny? Come and see me in a couple of weeks when I'm starving and dinner's not on the table and I might give you a different story. <laughs> we should catch up more. Any ideas for Yeah. Oh, gosh, got so many. Um, everything down to top tips to containing the clutter. I think that seems to be the biggest thing for a lot of people at the moment. Pete, we've all got stuff that's out of control. You know, we've got drawers that are spilling over. So I want to do that. I want to do some of my top tips on organising, getting the place running smoothly. Yep. We've got winter coming up, how to keep the place warm and not blow the budget, all that kind of stuff. So I think yep. we've got heaps to talk about. You know me, I could talk underwater with a mouthful of marble. You betcha, you, know. you betcha. What do you want to get... talk about? Let's do <laughs> Where it. do we go? I'll have to get you in the studio next time. And now listen, what's on the show this week? I'm talking to Tara Dennis from Better Homes and Gardens. What's on the show this Friday, Taz? It's awesome. I've got the best. Who doesn't love a window seat? Now, you being yeah. an architect, you mm-hmm. understand about the value of, you know, light and all of that kind of stuff and, and positioning of furniture. So what we did is we built this, what we called a book nook. Basically, it's a window seat for a young family, and it had to be like a multifunctional space. So it's got drawers in it so that they can put all the kids' rubbish and clutter in there. They've got books on either side. It's comfy. It's cozy. They can curl up. They can lounge in the sunlight. It's so beautiful. I was absolutely chuffed with this this story. It was just beautiful. And, you know, all the crew stood back and went, geez, that looks great. And yeah. when the crew stand back and love it, as you know, yeah. it's a good story. <laughs> That's this Friday night on Better Homes and Gardens. Hey, Tars, we'll catch up in the next few weeks, eh? Awesome. Thank you, Pete. Hey, here's a better idea. Why not click subscribe on the Acast app and make us part of your weekly podcast playlist? Next week, we're talking the forces of nature and bring the outside in with one of Australia's leading architects, the passionate Renato Diatore. Now, Renato has featured many homes on the Better Homes and Gardens TV show. He's an absolute inspiration. And he's going to convince us that water is the key to all good design. Well, water, Peter, is a life-giving element and anything that is in that vein needs to be respected. And Better Homes and Gardens gardening guru, Jason Hodges, is stopping by. You've been listening to Better Ideas, a new weekly podcast from the Better Homes and Gardens TV gang. Now, Better Ideas is a Seven West Media podcast. The producer, Loretta Farrell. Executive producer, Nikki Hamilton. And I'm your host, Peter Cahoon. Join me next week for more Better Ideas. Better Ideas.